Moment of Truth with Pastor Matt Shackelford is a ministry of Central Church in Collierville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at centralchurch.com. What does it take for guilty man to be made right with holy God? The Bible tells us all have sinned. We've all broken God's law and we all stand guilty. And God says that the wages of our sin is death. And you can't earn salvation. You can't bribe God with good works. So what do we do? This is the truth. There's only one way to be made right with God and it's a free gift. And the moment that you repent, the moment you place your faith that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins, God will make you right with him. He will wash you, he will make you white as snow. So moment of truth today, what will you do with Jesus? Welcome to the Christmas edition of Moment of Truth. All month long, we are celebrating the birth of our Savior. If you're like most people, Christmas is all about the gifts we give each other. In Matthew 2, we see the gifts that the Magi brought Jesus, and we see an example of the gifts that we are expected to bring the King as well. Before we begin today's sermon, we want to invite you to Christmas at Central. On December 24th, Christmas Eve, at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock p.m., we will have a candlelight service as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. This is a time to turn the focus away from ourselves and to focus on thanking God for sending Jesus, God's only Son. Let's turn to Matthew 2 and listen in now for your moment of truth. All month long, we're looking at pictures of Christmas, and we're trying to get God's perspective on Christmas. Last week, we saw that God has sent His perfect sacrifice for sin. And you could sum up last week, as some did on Facebook, by saying, God doesn't want your goat. God doesn't want another sacrifice. God doesn't want you to bring something to the altar. He has given His sacrifice in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And he wants you to put your faith where he has placed your sin on Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for sin. But Baptist preacher Vance Havner said it well. He said, Christmas is based on an exchange of gifts. It's the gift of God to man, his unspeakable gift of his son, and the gift of man to God. You see, Christmas is also, yes, it is Jesus Christ coming, and He is the gift to us. He is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. But in the same way, we are to come and we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifice to the Lord. We're to worship. We're looking at the gifts that we should bring. This is the response that we should bring. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ? Where the Christ was to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, this is a great passage. The point of this passage is really, these are men who brought gifts. These are first responders, and they bring gifts to their Lord. Verse 11 is especially powerful. You see their gifts, and we'll get into that. And some of you have this underline, especially the essential oils people. You're loving verse 11. This is, this is like your life verse, all right? You're like ribbing your husband right now, saying, see, I got proof. It works. These are gifts fit for a king. But what I want to just give you before we sit down, before we dig into this text, I want to just give you this thought. The book of Matthew is all about proving that Jesus is King Jesus. Matthew's gospel and the purpose of Matthew's gospel, he writes to a a Jewish audience. And what he's saying is he's trying to prove that Jesus Christ is the rightful king of Israel. And he does that in several ways. Let us all bow down. This is the king, the true king. And, and he starts out in chapter 1 by giving this royal genealogy. He gives this genealogy of the king of kings. And he says, this is someone who has the right to rule on David's throne. He has the right to take the throne of Israel. And then he goes to the virgin birth. And he says, not only is he a descendant of David, not only does he have the right to reign and to rule, he, is, uh, he has a dual lineage. He is the king of Israel, but he's also the king of all creation. He is God's own son. And, and throughout Matthew's gospel, you'll hear this phrase, and so scripture was fulfilled. And so scripture was fulfilled. Matthew is showing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. He is the King of the world. And you and I ought to place our faith in Him. But in chapter 2, we get an idea of the response. We look at Herod, and we look at Israel, and we look at the Magi, and we see their response. And the great takeaway is this, is that the people of God should respond and bring Him gifts. I want to show you four gifts that the people of God ought to bring to Jesus Christ as worship. May God bless the preaching of the word. May God bless the people of God as we hear and obey. Well, let's get into it. Four gifts that uh, we ought to bring, and we're just going to get them straight out of the text. Four gifts. First of all, we need to give him our attention. Give him our attention. 
Look at verse 1. We're introduced to the wise men. Now, I, growing up, I loved the wise men. We would, uh, uh, they kind of seem out of place. They seem uh, a little different than every other character in the Bible. Uh, in my mind, they're wearing these bright clothes, and maybe you've been to a Christmas play where you see them all dressed up. As a kid, I loved it in the Christmas play. They would bring down these camels down the middle of the aisle, and, and the wise men would ride on them, and they had crowns, and they were dressed in all these vivid colors. And as we look at them, they seem just, just, just a little out of place in the Bible. There's these interesting, interesting characters. And it brings me to say, what do we really know about them? You ready? I'm going to read you everything the Bible has to say about who they are. Verse 1. Look what it says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's it. That's all we know. Eight words. That is it. We know nothing else about the wise. This is the only place uh, they're mentioned in the whole Bible. This is the only thing. We, we don't know anything about them other uh, than, than this right here, verse 1. We don't know how they, they got there. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what they were writing. Uh, we don't even know how many there were. You know, often we say there's three. It just, it's just plural, it's just, it's just plural. It could have been 10. You know, there's three gifts, and so we assume there were probably three people that gave those gifts, but we don't ultimately know that. Now, in the 7th century, they're given, uh, they're given names, uh, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar of India, right? They're given these three names, but uh, that's 7th century, first time we get those names. That's pretty late. It's pretty late. We don't know where they're from. We don't know their names. We don't know any of that for sure. Now, we can we can make some educated guesses on who they are. Um, we know which direction east is, right? And it says they're from the east. Now, we know that Israel has been in the east, right? Israel's been in the east. Babylon, Assyria. And, and so we can assume that these were probably uh, successors of Daniel. These were probably people that, that Daniel met and he gave the, the Israeli wisdom and, and these scrolls to. And maybe these are people 600 years later and they're reading Daniel's Bible and they're, they're seeing prophecy and maybe that's what's going on. Look at their title here. They're, maybe your Bible calls them wise men. They're called magi. Literally, the word is magoi. Uh, it literally means great ones, um, not kings. They're not kings, but these are indeed great people. The word is from the word magic. Um, these were pagan astrologers. These were stargazers, but God draws them. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Now, this is interesting. Some commentators have said that the Megoi, the Magi in Babylon, these were the ones who appointed the next king of Babylon. So this group of Magi, they got together and they would determine who is to be the next king and they would vote or they would, they would elect them or they would put them on the throne. These were powerful people. And I think if we assume they come from Babylon, Iraq, Iran, that area of the world, we, we have to assume that they have made a very long trip, 800 miles by caravan. This has been a long, long journey. Maybe that's a great reminder for some of you today. Maybe this week is a week of travel. You're going to be traveling, and, and, and maybe you would just be reminded of the wise men at this time of the year when you go on your trip this week that, the, that maybe you just, just put your attention on the Lord as you travel. 
Look at verse 1. Now, there's more for us here. It does tell us when they came. Verse 1 says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, This was after. So, don't be offended here. I'm going to ruin a few of your nativity scenes in your front yard. I'm going to ruin a few Christmas cards here. They were not there at the same time as the shepherds, all right? They weren't all there at the same time, and, and that may disappoint you because you have this picture of what it should look like on a Christmas card. Uh, several reasons to kind of think the Magi came later. Matthew 2.11, you can write that down. It says they came into the house, They came into the house. Now, so at some point, we have moved from a stable. We have moved from the manger, and we're out of all of that. We're out of the cave. We're out of the stable, and we're into a house at this point. Then it says they saw the child. The word child here is piton, and uh, several words used of babies and children in the Bible. This is one that most likely refers to an older baby, uh, maybe a year old, maybe six months old, but it's not, not a newborn infant anymore. Another key, Herod uh, tries to kill uh, the babies that are two years and, and younger, right? Now, what's Herod doing there? Well, he's trying to cover all his bases. He sees them coming, and he's trying to ascertain when this child was born, and so now he's trying to kill the babies two and under. So, so it, it's, it's very, um, it's, you could understand how maybe Jesus would have been a little bit older, maybe six months to a year. That's most likely when they came. But the main question is none of that. Those are just details. The main question is, why did they come? Why did they come? And the answer is that they saw a star. Just go here with me for just a second. Here you have these stargazing, astrologists, idol-worshipping, possibly Babylonians, and they are as pagan as pagan can be. And all of a sudden, they see a star. They see a star. Israel's blind to it. They see it. Their eyes are open to it. You have these stargazing pagans, and all of a sudden, they're making an 800-mile road trip to see God. I mean, do you just, do you just see the goodness of God in that? I mean, you just, just, just take a minute and, and just soak that in. That could be a sermon in and of itself. God reaches to the heart of a nation and to a certain small group of people, these pagan stargazers, and they are miles and miles and miles from Jesus, and God's saving purposes will not be thwarted. He saves them. He brings them. He he opens their eyes to pay attention, to pay attention. And their story is really Their story is really the the story of all of us. There was a time when all of us were lost and we were blind and we were deaf and we were dead, but God does this work in our lives and he gives us a new heart and we have our eyes opened and we have our ears unplugged and he brings us to life. That's our story. Now these are most likely the academic descendants of Daniel. So they see the star. They've been reading Daniel's texts. And all of a sudden, they say, what could the star mean? And they look at some of Daniel's Bibles, maybe, or some of Daniel's scrolls, and they pull up the book of Numbers. Why don't you turn to Numbers chapter 24? Numbers 24, we'll see a prophecy here. This is possibly what they read that keyed them in that this king has been born. Numbers 24, look at verse 15. This is the prophecy of Balaam. This was a very famous prophet, especially to them. 
they would have definitely known who Balaam was. They would have read his prophecy. Look what it says, verse 15, Numbers 24, verse 15. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of man whose eyes is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High and who sees visions of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. So you have these pagans, and they're studying all sorts of prophecy. And they see a star, and they say, we know what that is. This is the prophetic coming of Israel's Messiah. Let's go and see this king who's going to crush the enemy. Let's go and see him. And ultimately, God opens their eyes, and they give Jesus their attention. And that, my friends, is the first response that every one of us needs to have at Christmas time. My friends, we give him our attention. We give him our full attention. God is saying to us this morning, pay attention, pray that God would open our eyes more and that we would just have these moments throughout this entire month to just marvel at the greatness of God. The songs we just sang that God would condescend to be born a man. Maybe we would marvel that we were at a place like these pagan stargazers and God came to us when we were far off, far from him, and he opened our eyes. Dads, maybe this is the week where you take your children and you strategically place your eyes on him. You give him your attention and you, you take your children, you lead them in devotionals leading up to Christmas. You watch for these opportunities to talk in your family about the birth of the king. What do we give? Four things. We give first our attention. Second, we need to give him surrender. Now, verses one through four primarily focuses on the character of Herod the Great. Now, this is a, uh, and I just want to lay this out for us at the very beginning. This is a battle for who is king. This is a battle for who will sit on the throne. Remember, what is Matthew's gospel about? It's that Jesus Christ is the rightful king, and you and I need to bow our knee to him. This is a battle for who is Lord. Verse 1, look what it says. In the days of Herod the king. Now, now this gets very interesting. I want to just share a few things of the life of Herod. Herod was, uh, he ruled Israel with an iron fist. Monuments to Herod still exist all over Israel. He is a major figure. And I kind of think about this every year as we come back to Christmas and Easter. There are these two characters that just keep reappearing. There's Herod the Great. There's Pontius Pilate. You remember him? And uh, these figures just keep appearing, and we talk about them every year. We talk about them at Christmas. We talk about them uh, at Easter, and we just keep coming back to them. But I just I marvel over this that no one would really care who these two people were if they had not come in contact with Jesus Christ. Well, that's the point here. Herod comes in contact with Jesus Christ, and he has concern. He has concern. Look, he's very concerned in keeping his throne, not losing his throne. A couple things here. He's known as Herod the Great. Now, the reason he's known as Herod the Great is because he was a bit of a strategic genius. Uh, he was a bit of an architectural genius. 
When you go to Israel, and some of you have been, you'll see structures like Masada and the Herodian and Caesarea Maritima and all these places that he built. He built the Temple Mount, and this was a man who built in incredible ways. He built to a scale no one had ever seen. And, and, and it was like, if you don't have a mountain to build on, no problem. We have slaves. We have people to build a mountain. And he'll build a mountain, and they'll haul in all this dirt and create a mountain. And they did that on the Temple Mountain, on the Temple Mount. And then, you know, with, uh, with Caesarea, you know, you go there today, and it's this place along the coast, and there's no harbor. There's no harbor. There's no safe place for ships to kind of put in. And so Herod says, no problem. We'll build our own harbor. We'll build a, a false harbor, and he sinks all these massive stones, and he creates a harbor for all the ships to come in on a place where there's no harbor at all. He builds these massive, massive structures. But what you need to know about Herod is that Herod had no right to be the king of Israel. He had no right to be the true king. In fact, he wasn't Jewish at all. He was a Jewish king not being a Jew. Uh, Herod was an Edomian. His father uh, was an Edomite. His mother was an Arab. He had no right to the throne. How'd he get there? How, how is it that a guy like Herod rises up and says, I'm the king? Well, he, he made some strategic friendships. He made friendships with, uh, with Mar- Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And then after that whole ordeal, he made a, a friendship with Caesar Augustus. And they put him in as king of Judea. But he was not Jewish. He had no legal right to be king. No legal right to the throne. But for Herod, what you need to know about him is for Herod, power was the obsession of his life. When someone becomes a threat to Herod's rule, he becomes ruthless. Let me give you a few examples. He was very paranoid. Uh, He killed three of his sons, thinking his sons were to betray him. One of his sons, get this, five days before Herod dies, he kills his third son. When you're about to die and you kill your sons, It's just amazing to think about his brother-in-law, he had drowned because he thought of him as a threat. It's amazing. Uh, It was so bad that that Caesar Augustus uh, said of Herod the Great, it would be better to be uh, Herod's pig than to be his son. Now, the idea there, those two words kind of rhyme in the Greek, uh, but what he was saying is Herod is such a hypocrite, uh, he, he's going to pretend to be a Jew, even though he's Edomian, he's going to pretend to be a Jew, he's going to follow all the festivals, all the ordinances, he's going to pretend to be Jewish, he won't eat a pig, he won't harm a pig, but his sons he will kill. And so that was Caesar Augustus's observation of the man's life. Power was the obsession of his life. Vile vile man. Uh, Just to drive that home, he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be adored. Uh, On the day of his death, he was, uh, he gave orders that when he dies, when he breathes his last, that his soldiers should go through the city, should round up members of influential households, bring them into the city, and put them to death so that when he dies, there will be mourning all over Jerusalem. This is a man who is wicked. This is a man who wants to be king. This is a man who wants to be adored. His entire life was concerned with maintaining his kingship. So that's who we're dealing with. And here, Herod sees Jesus as a threat. Look at verse 1. Let's read it again with that context. Behold, wise men came from the east saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. 
And when it rose, we've come to worship him. Now imagine paranoid Herod receiving that message. Where is he born king of the Jews? Where's the one who's born with the right to rule? Remember, Herod is the usurper to the throne. He is not the true king. He is the one who takes the throne. He is the one who protects the throne. He has no real right to the power of the throne, and he has taken it in his ears here. Where's the one born with the right to rule? Where is he? Herod's immediately filled with jealousy. Look at verse 3. His concern, it spreads to the whole city. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Troubled, literally, it's the word to be thrown down. It's the word to be unsettled. And uh, maybe in your household, you've heard this, this phrase, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? Do you use that? When mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Maybe you've used that one. That's kind of the idea here. Herod has been unsettled, and the whole city knows this is an unstable man who will do anything to protect the throne that he's on. Therefore, they're unsettled. Look at verse 4. So we see his concern. We also see his cunning in verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ? Where is the Christ that was to be born? We trust that today's message has been a challenge and an encouragement to you. Jesus tells us that truth always demands a response. So he calls us to be doers of his word, not hearers only. So this is your moment of truth. How is God calling you to respond? We'd also like to meet you in person. Worship with us at 9 or 11 a.m. every Sunday at Central Church. If you're unable to attend in person, we also have services streaming live where you can engage and chat with other believers throughout the service. Visit centralchurch.com slash live to find out more. Moment of Truth is sponsored by Central Church.